to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor. If I didn't catch you on the way in, uh, so glad that you are here with us today. Uh, and so if you're a guest with us, we're really glad that you're here. And we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. So you will find a blue card in your seat. Uh, that's a connection card. You can fill that card out or you can uh, scan the QR code you see up there on the screen. Uh, and for filling out that card, we will just want to get to know you a little bit better, tell you a little bit more about City on a Hill. And for filling that out, we will uh, send you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery, which is just around the corner, as well as make a donation to a charity that we'll send to you via email. So we'll, we'll send you an email, just respond to that email, tell us which charity you would like for us to send that to, and we will send it uh, in your name. And so uh, you can drop that card in the black box in the back, or again, you can scan uh, the code up there. Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. Gospel means good news, that we were once separated from God uh, because of our sin, uh, and that uh, because our sinful choices, our sinful actions and desires that, that are contrary to God and his word, and that God sent his very own son, Jesus, to die in our place to give us a new hope in him so that whoever trusts in the work of Jesus can be saved. And if you have not entered into that life-giving relationship with Jesus, I would love to walk with you on how to do so today. Uh, secondly, community. God created us for relationships. And so because of that, um, we gather together in community groups, which gather together throughout the week. Uh, they get together um, uh, to study God's word, to uh, encourage one another, and to love our neighbors. And so this, this is people from every background, um, every walk of life coming together. And so this is a great week to get connected to a community group. We are starting our summer semester of community groups. So if you are have not jumped into a group yet or you're new this morning, this is a great time. So if you'll go to the back and you'll sign up, uh, there, there, we have two groups this summer. We have one in JP at 730. And then another is a little more geared toward families. You don't have to be a family to be in that group, but they're going to be, they're going to go to the park three times a week, let the kids run and get crazy and then study together and then do like an adult night one night. Uh, but we'd love for you to sign up for either of those. In fact, if you're already a part of a group, just go ahead and put your name down too. Cause you know, people see names and they're like, Hey, other people are going to show up. So go ahead and put your name down there too. Um, and in fact, we actually have a, a, a group for youth. Uh, as well for the first time. So they're studying that, on, doing that on Tuesday nights. And our youth group had their first event yesterday and terrorized the North End with a scavenger hunt. And uh, it was a lot of fun, I hear. So I'm really sad that I didn't get to go be a part of that. Um, and then secondly, or lastly, mission. God created us to join him on his mission. So we tell others about what Christ has done for us, as well as uh, share, uh, live lives shaped by what Jesus has done for us. Now, a few announcements before we get into the text this week. Um, coming up um, uh, in a couple of weeks on June, July 1st, we have a new staff member who's going to be joining us. His name is Christopher Boulder. You can see a picture of him here on the screen. And so this is Christopher and Brittany and their beautiful children. Zeke got his face cut off because we couldn't get the picture to fit. Um, but uh, Christopher's going to be joining our staff. Um, he'll be with us for at least a year. Uh, he'll be joining, jumping into a, a director of neighborhood, opera, uh, neighborhood outreach type role because uh, we do a lot of stuff in the neighborhoods. He's going to organize that, rally teams together, and really be kind of the front outward face for 
serving uh, our neighbors. Uh, and so, and then after about a year, we're going to evaluate whether Chris is ready to step into uh, a church planting residency. So Christopher has the, the possibility of being our first church plant out of our church. We're praying for what God might do, but uh, we're excited to have Christopher and his family come up. So there are going to be plenty of ways for you to love them, serve them, help them get moved in, bring a meal, be an encouragement for them as they uh, enter into the city. So this is the time of year where uh, we have people coming, we have people going. And so um, so one thing, one family I want to mention, the Redferns, Daniel and Stephanie are going to be moving uh, next week. Um, I know D- Daniel looks really excited because I just called him out in the middle of the service. Um, but they've been with us for the last couple of months, and uh, we're, we're really sad to see them go. But they're going back to Spokane to be, be near family. And so just, just pray for them. Give them a hug. Tell them, how, tell them you're going to miss them. We're sad to see them go. Uh, but just make sure you honor them well as, as, as they go. Um, this morning, we are jumping into uh, the, the end of James chapter 1. Um, actually, I just skipped over a bunch of announcements. Let me jump backwards. Take two. I got all weepy and got excited. Sorry. Um, coming up next Sunday, we have a baptism class um, uh, right after the service. So if you're interested in baptism, um, you want to know, learn more about what it means to take that next step in following Jesus, um, go ahead and come to that class. You can sign up. You can see there the, the link for our event page. Sign up there. Let us know you're coming. Uh, it's about a 30-minute class, and that, that's the next step if you're interested in baptism. Uh, and also next Sunday for our members, we have our member meeting Sunday night, so be sure to uh, register uh, at the event page and sign up for, to bring something for the potluck. And then lastly, Kids Summer Adventure is coming up at the end of July. And so we, kids, we're super excited to have you. It will be a part of that. Be sure to have your parents sign you up. And also, if you would like to volunteer be sure to jump in on that as well just by scanning that QR code. Now we're going to jump into the end of James chapter 1. And so I'm very thankful for a couple of folks who, uh, who preached over the last few weeks. Aaron Peters from City in the Hill Brighton preached on the 4th, did a great job uh, while I was out of town. Um, part of uh, being a new church is we have church partners that support what we're doing here. And so we have a new partner in Fellowship uh, Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. And so if you came to our retreat last year, Jason Cook, who spoke at that retreat, is their pastor. And so he's a good friend of mine. They're a great partner for us. Uh, and then last week, Matt Waldrop did a killer job uh, teaching us in James chapter 2. So um, if you haven't encouraged Matt yet, be sure to do so. Matt did a who usually leads worship. I told him, I said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you preach more often. Uh, just don't ask me to lead worship and we'll be okay. Uh, and so, uh, so thank you, Matt, for d- doing a great job teaching us God's word. And so you may have noticed last week, it looked like we skipped part of the Bible. We always talk about how we don't ever skip stuff in the Bible. We, we tackle the hard stuff. Um, we jumped over the end of chapter one, verses 26 and 27. And if you're like a type A Enneagram one type, you're like, no, 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 it's in order for a reason. Um, we, we, we jumped over that I, because I really wanted to teach, to teach this text. Uh, James is a bit like I said in week one, like wisdom literature. Um, you, it's a little bit like the Proverbs. You can jump around a little bit and not lose meaning. Uh, but also, I really wanted to teach this text because it's a really important topic to me. It's a really important subject. And I believe all of God's word is important. I'll be very clear about that. But this resonates with me. There's certain passages and themes in scripture that will resonate with each of us. And this, this theme resonates with me because of my heart for the vulnerable and the oppressed. But also, I wanted to teach this because I think this is one of the biggest disconnects for Christians in the entire Bible the way that we care for the vulnerable, the oppressed, the orphaned, and the widow. And in verse 27, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled, in other words, true religion before God is the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is what it means to live out our faith. 
Now, for some, you hear the word religion, and that word religion has a bad, puts a bad taste in your mouth. You might think of religion versus a relationship. But when we talk about religion, we mean it in the best sense possible. It really is the outward expression of what you believe. It's the outward ethical expression, living out what you believe, because what you do is a reflection of what you believe, what you hold dear. And there's the old saying that actions speak louder than words. And you might say, man, I love my job. And imagine if if you just never went in, you just never went to work. Not like you telecommute and you work from home. You just never went to work. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Office Space where the guy just avoided work at all costs. Like just never going to work. You never go in. You never do your job. You never answer emails. You don't, you, you don't ever go to meetings. You don't do anything. And your boss comes up to you and your boss says, hey, I'm concerned. Are, are you doing okay? It really doesn't seem like you want to work here. And you're like, yeah, you know, I just love my job. I, I love working here. I love my coworkers. I love being here. And your boss says, no, I don't know that you do because your actions don't show that you do. In the same way, our beliefs are proven and shown by what we do. And what James is saying here is if you truly understand the gospel, if you truly understand what God has done for you, his love for you to give you his own son, you're going to live a certain way. Your words and your actions are going to change. And the reason why is that this is rooted back in how God has called us, how God has has saved us. If you look all the way back in verses 14 and 15, we see the fruit of what happens when sin and temptation take root in our lives. That a person is tempted and enticed by their own desires, and that the desire conceives sin, which leads to death. But the way that that's juxtaposed with us compared to our salvation in verse 18 is that of his own will, will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What's being described here is a new birth, that we're being brought forth as a new creation called to live a new life. So in other words, to follow Jesus doesn't just mean that we have better behavior or better morals as a way to earn our way before God, but that because we are a new creation, God radically is reshaping the way that we live, and our new life will be reflected in a new set of actions. And this is why verse 22 says that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In other words, we're to act out what we believe. And the reason that James gives in verse 23 and 24, it's been a few weeks, I want to just kind of cover this again, is that for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once, what? Forgets what he was like. What's the reason that James says that we fail to do God's word? It's not because we didn't listen well enough. It's not because we didn't go to church enough. It's not because we didn't read our Bible enough. It's not because we're ignorant of what to do. It's that we forget who we are. We forget what we look like. We forget that we were once sinners who have now been redeemed. We forget that we were once orphans who are now children of God. We forget that we once had no purpose or hope, but now we have purpose and hope in Christ. And so the solution for us is to remember, to keep coming back to remembering who we were and who we are in Christ because of the hope of the gospel. And we're to do this over and over and over again. And this is why we're called to look into the law of liberty like a mirror, which shows us who we are and who we are now in Christ. And so the big idea for today is that we remembering who you are in Christ motivates you to obey Christ. 
And so as the law and the gospel are a mirror that we look into, what happens as, as we read God's word is that James gives us some diagnostic questions to help us examine our hearts, to help us examine our lives. And we see three questions that we're going to unpack today in verses 26 and 27. The first is, is the gospel changing the way I speak? Is the gospel changing the way that I speak, the words that I use? Verse 26 says, if anyone thinks he is religious. And so what this is doing is if anyone is alerting us to the fact that all of us need to consider this that all of us need to wrestle with the idea of whether we think we are right with God or with the world. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not a religious person. Maybe you're, you're here in church today, it's been a while, or you, maybe you never even stepped into a church. We're really glad you're here. You're welcome to walk with us as we explore this. But you may be thinking, I'm not religious, so this really doesn't apply to me. I've never thought myself to be religious. But I actually think we are way more religious than any of us think. Even if you're not someone who goes to church, if you're not someone who claims to be a Christian, I think all of us are religious because if religion is simply living out the beliefs you say you believe, we all do that. We all have these things that are said or unsaid rules or ways of thinking that we think the world should work. And this can be anything. This could be the way you see the environment. We should live a certain way. We should recycle and, and, and use products that are not one-use products. You know, it could be justice. It could be a certain political vision. It could be you know, something weird like timeliness. I love being on time. Um, I'm religious about it, okay? Um, but whatever that thing might be, whatever it is, we feel right when we do it. And what happens when we don't? We feel frustrated or angry or hurt or disappointed. And we often hold other people to those rules that we hold ourselves to. That is being religious. Now, to be clear, James is clearly referring to those who would say, I'm right with God. Those who would say, I, I have a relationship with Jesus. But for all of us, we need to consider the words that we use and what it says about our hearts, because if the way that we're speaking is not changing, something is really off about our relationship with Jesus. Think back again to verse 18. I said that we were a new creation. There's a new birth that's happened. And what's the first thing that, that James gets to in verse 19? He says that we need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. New birth should give us new words to speak. Some of us have that ready, fire, aim approach to speaking, right? There's no filter between brain and mouth. We just say stuff. We need to be slow in our speech. Our speech also needs to be Speech that is gracious. The very next word in verse 20 is, that, or verse 19, into 19 and beginning of 20 is we need to be slow to anger. That our words shouldn't be angry words, they should be life-giving words because our anger almost always comes out in the words we say. The next verse in verse 21, it says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. These, these are things that we, we say. Again, it's how we speak. And the call here is to bridle the tongue. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A bridle is an apparatus that you would put around a horse's head. You put it around the horse's head, and there's a metal bit that would go in the horse's mouth, and there are reins that you'd pull back on in order to direct the horse. Now, if you've ever ridden a horse, they're gigantic. They're way bigger than us, way stronger than us. But with that, that bridle, you're able to control something much bigger than you. 
You're able to give it direction. You're able to take this powerful animal and direct it in the direction that you want it to go because that very large, very strong animal can get away from you. Has anybody ever been riding a horse and the horse begins to trot away like at three miles an hour and you start to get scared? Like you feel out of control. A horse at large can cause a lot of damage. And our tongue is the same way. If we don't control and bridle and direct the words of our mouth, we can create lots of damage, but we can also, if we bridle our tongues, create life. And we're going to cover this a lot more in chapter 3. Because if we don't do this, what James says is that if we don't bridle our tongue and we don't control our words and we don't think through the things that we're saying and in the ways that we're saying them, we're deceiving our hearts. We deceive our hearts. And what does that mean? It means there can be a massive disconnect between what you say you believe and what you say to other people. And you deceive yourself because you think you're right with God, even though your words don't match what you say you believe. One of the clearest ways we've seen this is the January 6th committee, right? Anybody watching that? And one of the most striking pictures I saw was was a, a Confederate flag and a Trump flag and a Christian flag all juxtaposed right there as people are storming the Capitol. That's people deceiving themselves, thinking that they believe in the mercy and the grace of Jesus, yet are, are behind insurrection. But that's an extreme example. What about us? See, you can go to worship, and you can pray, and you can be a part of a community group, and you can be generous, yet say horrible things on social media. You can be cruel to your roommate. You can gossip about other people. You can be a bitter person that when people are around you, just bitterness and hurt spews out. And what James says is that if our words are like this and we're deceiving ourselves to the point where there's this massive disconnect in our our belief and our words, that our religion is worthless. It's empty. And others see that and they think, why would I want to believe that when your words say the opposite? When your words are so bitter, when your words are so unkind. And it deceives us because we think that we're right with God. We think we're right with God because we do the right religious things, but our, heart, our words reveal the content of our heart. Alec Moiter says that our words or our tongue is the index of the heart. It tells you what's in there. I don't know if you've gone to a library recently, but if you've gone to a library and you've looked through their online catalog, back in the day, children, they used to have these big uh, big files with these little index cards in, in, the, in the thing. And if you pulled out a card, that card was somewhere, in, the book was somewhere in the library. Now it's digitized. Thank you, Lord, for common grace. And you look up where that, you look up where that book's located. And it's, it's going to be located on a particular section and a particular shelf. And you have the guarantee that if there's a card and there's an entry, that that book is somewhere in the library, but you might have to search a little bit. It's the exact same thing with our hearts. When you say something, it reveals what's really in there. It's inside you somewhere. And for many of us, when we speak, that's not how we think about our words, because when you say something cruel or you lose your temper, what do we tend to say? We tend to justify. We tend to say, no, that was out of character. That's not really who I am. That's not, I, did, I didn't really mean to say that, but Jesus knew better. In Matthew 12, 34, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For, from out of the abundance of what's inside of you, we speak. And so what this should cause us to do when we say something that angry or vulgar or bitter, what we should say is, oh man, I, 
Maybe I didn't know that was in there, but there's that index card saying that somewhere in my heart is anger or vulgar or bitterness. This this is who I am. And what that causes us to do is it causes us, if we really look at our hearts, to remember what God's word says about us, that I am a sinner, that I am that sinful, that I am that messed up, but I'm redeemed through the work of Jesus. And so the solution for us, how how we change our words is like this. It's not to just not say anything. It's not like Thumper's mom who said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It doesn't say that. It says bridle or control your tongue. But have you ever noticed how when you hang around certain people, you start to take on words that they say? You start to take on the intonation of their voice, their accent. I've been hanging around these these Louisianans, and my southern accent starts to come out back out a little bit. Um, uh, Mike Doyle, who's who's been a part of our church for the last year, um, uh, he 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 is like Gen Z dictionary, and he'll say stuff. And we're talking one time, and he's like. I said, hey, you want to go do something? He's like, bro, say less. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And it means that, it means that just, hey, say less. Like, I want to go do that. And so his words have started to find their way into my vocabulary. Words change, our words change when we immerse ourselves in God's word. What it says about you, what it says about who you were versus who you are, the hope you now have in Christ. And what you begin to see is, I can't speak this way because this is how Jesus has spoken of me with love and grace. So is the gospel changing your words? Secondly, is the gospel changing my heart for the oppressed? Is the gospel changing my heart for the oppressed? James juxtaposes again false religion or worthless religion with true religion in verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows or orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, clearly, there are other things that constitute true religion. We should worship. We should worship Jesus. We we should believe in Christ alone. We should have good doctrine. These are things that are part of being a follower of Jesus. We should be generous. We should pray. So it's not saying that this alone is what is true religion, but if you're missing these key ingredients, something is off. This isn't truly religiously following Jesus. Now, I remember one time I made cookies and I accidentally used salt instead of sugar. Now, all the rest of the ingredients were there. The butter, the chocolate chips, the flour, all that was there. But let me tell you, that did not taste like a cookie because it was no longer a cookie. There are certain ingredients in our religious walk with the Lord that if they are not there, it is no longer a true religion. And James singles out our care for the widow and the orphan. And I believe the reason he does this is because these are things that gain us nothing. These are things that cost us. These are things that cost us time and money and and energy. And look, there are lots of religious things that you and I can do that make us look good. There's, There's a lot of things that we can do that really don't cost us a whole lot that make us look good before others. They give us a deep sense of purpose, but caring for the orphan and the widow is the purest picture of unmerited grace because it mirrors what Christ has done for us in our helplessness. What what did Christ gain from us? What, what What did he earn from us? Nothing. He earned glory before the Father. And he did it out of love for us. And so for us to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, the word visit there means to look after. It it means to 
seek the welfare of the vulnerable. Now, in the ancient world, the orphan and the widow were the two most vulnerable classes in the entire world. And so the, the orphan and the widow had no rights. They had no inheritance. There were no government programs. There was no feeding program. They were completely at the, the mercy of, and kindness of other people who would give alms or money or alleviate their suffering. And so the affliction that he's talking about here, it it means to to look after and alleviate their suffering. And if you look at the Old Testament, there's this clear ethic, and it's a precedent that should be flood into the New Testament to seek justice for the oppressed, to, to make right what is wrong, to make whole what is broken and lacking. And when we look at this, the vulnerable in our world is a picture of the fact that the world's not right. Tony Evans says, biblical justice is rooted in seeking the welfare of those who are unable to fend for themselves. In fact, this is a way that Israel was set apart from their neighbors because of the way they care for the immigrant, the poor, the orphaned, and the widow. And we see that it is rooted in God's special heart for these people. Exodus 22 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I surely hear their cry. And then it goes on in the next couple verses to talk about some really painful things that would happen to those who mistreated the widow and the fatherless. The Old Testament would tell them to set aside provisions and to leave the edges of the field ungleaned or unpicked. And what he says in Isaiah is that if your worship does not include alleviating the suffering of the afflicted. Your worship is worthless. Isaiah 1 and verse 11, it says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. And he goes on to list all the religious things that they did. And in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The Old Testament describes God as the father of the fatherless, the defender of the lowly. And so, men, it is Father's Day. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the men in the room. Uh, and I want to encourage you, if you're a father, like you have an incredible opportunity to be an influence in your, in your kid's life. And, and there's study after study after study that shows if you'll be an engaged father who's present who's emotionally available, who loves and demonstrates love to your child, it makes an incredible impact in their life. And I challenge you to do that. It's also a day of lament. There's many men who desire, who desire to be fathers who can't be fathers. It's a day of lament for those who've lost fathers or maybe didn't have the relationship with their dad that they hoped they would have. And I resonate with that, that my dad passed away five years ago. And one of the struggles for me was we just never got to have the relationship I wanted with a father. I just want to challenge you that as we read these verses, and this is a challenge for all of us, but men on Father's Day, I really want you to think through how you can be a father to the fatherless. How can you step into places and embrace people who need to be cared for with a father's love? And so for all of us, if you've been born again, If you're a child of God, you you have to love those whom Jesus loves. You have to serve those who God wants us to serve. And this requires us to answer two questions. Who are the vulnerable and oppressed in our city and our world? And then secondly, how do we act to alleviate suffering? Who who are the, the vulnerable and the oppressed? I think in our own city, we see the poor and the elderly. I think the elderly are one of the the classes that get ignored the most. 
I think we see the unborn child and the orphan. I mean, we were in a, we're in a place right now where there's the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I do believe that we, we should pray for the end of that in the sense of, of, of abortion as an evil, but of, to care for the unborn child. But I also think as the church, we gotta be ready to step in in, in pregnancy crisis centers and ask the church to love uh, mothers who are fi- wanting to figure out how do they love a child, to, to step in and care for uh, orphan children, to be holistically pro-life in the way we approach this. The vulnerable and the oppressed, we see this continued through, race, through racial injustice. As we talked about Juneteenth as a picture of the, the emancipation of slaves, we continue to see people being discriminated against because of their skin color, both uh, individually and systemically. We see the abused who are vulnerable and oppressed, whether that's children being abused or women being sexually abused. And we have to protect and be an advocate and be a safe place as the church for those who have been harmed. And so how do we act on this? How do we step in and alleviate this type of suffering and brokenness? And the Bible tells us to love mercy and do justice. And I believe that the church is the starting place for this to happen. The church provides a starting place because you don't, you can, you, when we see all the brokenness around us, you're not doing this alone. You're doing this together with a group of people committed and called to a common mission, to a particular goal, to image the, the, the glory of God in our city. And we're better together because each of us has different passions. And this allows you to zero in on which one of these God grips your heart with. And so there are plenty of ways that you can step in to serve, practical ways I want to mention that you can serve. One way is uh, we, there's a homeless ministry that happens here through Forest Hills Covenant Church every Saturday. And they've asked us if we would step in and some of us would volunteer for that. So if, if God puts something in your heart, step into that ministry. The work we do at Boston Housing, the work we do at Boston Housing where we step in and care for the poor and vulnerable, we, 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 you can step into that. Uh, the work we do at English High School to, to address food insecurity. And also our church is hard for foster care and adoption. There are 2,800 children in, in the Massachusetts foster care system. 1,200 of those have no placement. How do we, we as the church step in? Tina Bradford is beginning to work with our city on, how, on some ways that we can step in, uh, not, just, um, not just for us to uh, foster and adopt, but how can we as a church, for maybe those who aren't ready or able, how can we step and come alongside and support? For, for the, those who are abused, we have a system here at the church called Caring Well that our leaders have been trained in to address, uh, to address abuse in a trauma-informed way, to care for those who have been abused so you have a safe place to go, but also to try to prevent abuse even within our own church. And so if one of these really grips your heart, I really challenge you, there's a yellow card in your seat. Fill that card out. Mark the fact that you want to step into something like this. Drop it in the box in the back and we'll follow up with you. So is the gospel changing your heart for the vulnerable? Lastly, is the gospel changing how I relate to the world? Now, my guess is if caring for the vulnerable did not challenge you, maybe that's just your wheelhouse and you're really justice-focused, I believe the second half of this verse will. I found that if you tend to be more conservative, you tend to struggle with caring for the vulnerable and the oppressed. But if you tend to be more liberal or progressive, you might tend to struggle with the idea of conforming to the Bible's moral vision. And in Boston, I think this is particularly our struggle because we get activism. We've been activists from like the Tea Party. Like we understand activism in our city. We understand justice and rightly so. But James says that's not enough. It's not enough to care for the vulnerable and oppressed if we're not living holy lives. 
And it's not a lot, enough to live a moral life if we're not caring for the poor and the oppressed. And the Bible actually links these two ideas, saying that if we fail to do either of these, in Amos it says that our injustice towards the poor or moral impurity are both profaning the name of God. And we need to see if, if you want to love and serve the vulnerable and the oppressed without, uh, with the oppressed without submitting to Jesus and his way for us to live, you really just want the kingdom without the king. You want the benefits of the kingdom that Jesus said he would bring that would be full of mercy and love and justice and equity without a king who rules over us to make sure that those things happen. And what that means is you're actually borrowing from the Christian worldview which promises that one day there will be no more suffering and no more pain and that Jesus will reign. University of Houston professor John Leinhart says that the first hospitals as we know them were created by Christians because the word hospital is a mixture of the two words hotel and hospitality. And the word hospitality as we find it in the Bible is a uniquely Christian word because it means to take the stranger and make that person into family. And so by the fourth century, the Christians were running houses for civilians who became sick as a type of mercy. And you need to understand that in the ancient world, most hospital or most any medical clinic was pretty much reserved for the rich and for those who were in the military. And it was not very merciful. By the eighth century, Christians had begun to specialize hospitals and hospices, and other religions actually began, including Islam, began to notice and began to import the, those ideas into their ethical teaching. The idea of foster care in the United States was created by a New York City pastor named Charles Loring Brace in the 1850s because he saw thousands of homeless children all across New York City and said he wanted to get them into Christian homes so they could be loved in the same way that Jesus loves us. The Father adopts us into his family as his children. We need to understand that this is a purely and uniquely Christian vision for the world, and that alongside this, we're called to keep oneself unstained from the world, meaning that we need to give detailed, constant attention to what's forming us. What are you giving yourself to? Who are you following on Instagram or on Twitter? What are the messages that you're beginning to internalize that are shaping the way you think, the way you believe, and how you act. And the reality is, is that it is not usually a drastic or quick jump. It's a very slow drift away from God's word. And this is why we need to constantly look back to the scriptures like a mirror, because we need to hold up the messaging that we're hearing against the truth of God's word and let it confront us. The reality is, is that the Bible confronts every single one of us whether you grew up in a religious home or an irreligious home, whether you grew up as a Republican or a Democrat, whether you grew up, whatever it is, the Bible confronts you. And you have to let it challenge you. You have to let it challenge who you love. You have to let it challenge what you call sin and what you call holy. You have to let it convict you because you have to choose, will I obey God and his word or will I do what I want? And what we begin to see as we do that over and over again is that keeping ourselves unstained from the world as we go back to verse 25 is really meant for our blessing. If we live in the way that God has called us to live out of the new relationship, the new life we have as children of God through the work of Jesus, it is meant to lead to our flourishing. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you come across really hard things that you just struggle with. There are things the Bible says you can't do. There are things the Bible says that you can't say or that you can't live 
in a particular way, but what you hopefully will begin to see over time is that if God is good, and he's the giver of all good gifts, it means that God is good, not just in what he gives us, but what he restricts us in. He's good in what he denies us. He's good in what he asks you and I to give up because all those things are meant for our good because he is a good, good father. We tend to think that if we're told we can't do something or we're restricted, that that leads to death. We tend to think that true freedom means doing what I want, but what if God restricting you is meant to free you? Nobody would say that you're restricting a fish by taking it out of water and throwing it on the shore, right? What happens when you take a fish out of water? It begins to die. Now, that's not freeing the fish from the constraints of water. That's killing the fish. But as soon as you take that fish and you throw it back in the water, as long as there's still life in its gills, it begins to swim because that's what it was designed to do. In the same way, we see the vision for how God has called us to live that seems to restrict us, but is actually meant to free us. Augustine said that the human will does not attain grace through its freedom, but rather attains its freedom through grace. As we wrap up, let's think back through those three big questions. Is the gospel changing the way you speak? Is the gospel changing your heart toward the vulnerable and oppressed? Is the gospel changing the way that you relate to the world? And if we're honest, none of us are perfect on those three. None of us can say we've perfectly lived rightly by our words or by the way we treat others or the way that we abstain from sin. But what this calls us to do is to look to Jesus. It calls us to look to Jesus who did these perfectly, who is the word of God, who came to die for us, who were spiritually orphaned, that we could be a part of God's family, who lived a holy life so that you and I could be set free in him. Let's pray. 